Greetings and welcome to Take Back Our Schools. I am Beth Feely here with my co-host Andrew Gutman, and we are two accidental activist parents who woke up and spoke out about issues we saw in our children's education. And on this podcast, we tackle those issues as well as some solutions to the problems we saw. And today we are excited to welcome Jeremy Adams. Jeremy is a high school teacher uh, from Bakersfield, California. He teaches AP Honors Gov. AP Macroeconomics and History, and he also teaches at California State University, uh, and I wish he taught history at my kids' school. He is the 2014 California Teacher of the Year, and he is the author of the um, Amazon best-selling book, Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. He's also a columnist for The Daily Wire, and his other his pieces have appeared in Newsweek, The LA Times, Washington Post, Quillette, and other outlets, so we are thrilled to have you, Jeremy. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, well, why don't we why don't we start with your book? Um, the title is Hollowed Out, and perhaps you can explain what what you mean by hollowed out, and when did you first notice that perhaps Houston we have a problem with our kids um, that they were hollowed out, kind of lacking meaning in their lives. So, so what was it that tipped you off? Yeah, a lot to say there, huh? Yeah, it's a it's a big question, but um, you know, the, the good thing about teaching as long as I have, and this is now my twenty fifth year. Uh, which is kind of crazy to think a quarter of a century, um, is that when you've taught that long and all of a sudden things kind of change and you get these kind of dramatic or profound pivots uh, in the culture or in the behavior of your students or whatever, you, know, you notice it because there's kind of a before and after. Uh, and I would say that in the last, I don't know, eight to 10 years, this kind of very kind of upsetting uh, chasm has erupted between kind of the students I taught the first 15 years of my career and the way that things are in the last eight to 10 years. Um, and, and it kind of starts off with little things like, uh, you know, they, they have no idea who their congressman is. They, they you know, they, they can't name the vice president of the United States. There's, there's no knowledge about current events at all. And then you start to talk to them about their time. You know, how do you spend their, their, your time? And, you know, they have no idea what a family meal is. Uh, they know almost nothing about religion. Um, they don't go out with with their friends. Uh, they and then you start to talk to them about their lives, and they have a very negative view of marriage and family life, uh, and and the country. And you notice more and more kids are just sitting there instead of saying the national anthem um, or, or the pledge of allegiance. And so you kind of start to get all of these little things that you're noticing, uh, and you start to wonder, well, maybe if all these points, all these data points of kind of eccentric or odd behavior. Uh, maybe there's a common cause here. Maybe there's something going on that we really need to talk about. Uh, and, and so to answer your question about the title, because I get that question a lot, it's kind of a, it's kind of a dramatic title, right? Hollowed out. Um, but it's actually straightforward, which is that I guarantee anybody who's listening to this podcast, if I asked you, what are the things that make your life, what's make, what makes your life meaningful? What gives you joy? What makes you happy? I guarantee it's the same things over and over. It's a commitment to your family. It's a commitment to your faith. It's a commitment to your country. It's a commitment to your friendships. It's the connective tissue that fills your life with joy and meaning and purpose. And maybe there's a cause or an institution or a place that you deeply revere and you really love. And, and what's hard for people who are not in the classroom to understand is I want you to imagine a whole, an entire generation of young people that don't have any of those things in their lives. Um, they're not around adults. They don't have a, they don't spend much time with their families. They don't read books. They don't travel. They don't date. They don't particularly have a good view of America. They don't know anything about religion. And so all those things that fill in the human soul, that make us exult, that give us a sense of joy and purpose and grandeur and enchantment, it's just not there. 
Um, I mean, and that's why there's this weird paradox, Beth, between, you know, we live in the richest, wealthiest, freest time in all of human history, filled with the most miserable Americans who've ever lived. It's this but, weird paradox. So, but it sounds like in the early 2000s, you said you've been teaching 25 years. So late yeah. 1990s, early 2000s, you didn't necessarily see this dynamic of kids feeling hollowed out. So what happened eight to 10 years ago? Like, was was there an inflection point or like a real catalyst or or, do you, or what was it a confluence of factors that kind of came together by happenstance? I also have to mention social media kind of came online in a big way about that time frame as well. Yeah, I mean, the way that, I mean, you'd have to get somebody who's much smarter than me to kind of understand the huge, you know, questions of civilization and morality and politics and culture. But I would argue uh, that that what happened is, we've already had this kind of culture of what I call radicalized individualism, uh, where, you know, our young people fundamentally misunderstand the beauty and the eloquence of individual liberty. Like you and I probably understand liberty as liberty is great because we get to decide who to love, where to go, what to believe, how to live our lives. Uh, We get to use our freedom to figure out what to connect our lives to. And I think what you've seen developing, uh, you know, over time is instead of using freedom to decide what to connect to, young people have said, well, I'm going to use my freedom not to connect to anything. Uh, and you see that in things like, you know, one out of five millennials don't have a good friend in the entire world. Uh, millennials would rather have pets than animal uh, pets than, than, than children was a poll that just came out recently. You see these declining birth rates. Um, and so I think you already had this culture of, of really, really extreme hyper individualism, where it was really encouraging people not to connect to things that made any kind of uh, you know, ask any 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 real commitment of them, but then that, if that's kind of you know if that's kind of the slow fire, the culture, then I think social media and the phones came along at the exact wrong worst time because what that did was now we had these devices that could amplify and accelerate our individualism, right? So now. Uh, it used to be, it's kind of pathetic to stay home on a Friday night, not go to the f- football game. Now, you know, I can just say, well, I'm at home and this is how I socialize and this is how I entertain myself. Um, and, and of course, as you mentioned, you're absolutely right. This social media has been so, I mean, I don't know how to put, if I could put an exclamation point and an atomic bomb onto this statement, I would. It has been the absolute worst thing for the development of the moral and intellectual and an emotional development of our children um, because it has literally created this kind of alternative universe where the traditional things that teach us how to grow up, uh, the traditional things that teach us how to, how, how to work hard, how to love, how to have friendship, how to negotiate the world, how to, how to have eye contact. I mean, all the little things, uh, it's taking that away. I mean, not to mention, not to mention as a, as, as a teacher, I will tell you right now, they have no attention span, zilch. Um, there was a small study that was just conducted recently with college kids, 93 seconds uh, is about what the attention span is. Um, you look at how young people do their homework, they do one or two questions, and then they have to look at their phones and they think they're looking at their phones for a few seconds, but it's really a few minutes. Um, and, and I haven't even talked about uh, the death of reading. I mean, mm-hmm. w- w- phones are so ubiquitous, they're so tyrannical, that you are more likely to read a novel as a 13-year-old teenager in this country than a 17-year-old. Why? Because those phones have displaced so much of the good things that young people do. There's only so many hours in the day 
and, and by the way, you know, about the book, you know, everything that I wrote hollowed out just as a teacher. I also wrote it because I screwed up as a parent. I mean, I gave my children devices way too early. I didn't monitor what they were seeing. Um, you know, I, I noticed that my daughter was this bookworm and then all of a sudden didn't read at all by the time she was 15. Um, and, and so it's not just what I'm noticing in the classroom. It's also the mistakes I've made as a dad, which is the most important thing in my life. But it's almost, I mean, I have, I have a 14 year old daughter. I mean, it's, it's, we waited until she was until this year, until she was oh. 13, 13 and a half. We waited as long as we could. And, and we actually had to give her a flip phone for a little, for a little while until we finally gave her a smartphone. But it's hard to resist. I mean, what they what the kids tell you is that, well, this is my social life. Do you want me to not have a social life? This is how we connect. And if I don't have a phone, then I'll be sitting there by myself in my room. Now, of course, they're sitting there by themselves in the rooms anyway with their phones, <laughs> to your point. But it's, you know, it's almost impossible as a parent to resist that, don't you think? I think that's absolutely right. And by the way, they're not completely wrong. Um, and, and, and I would also say that, you know, we, we teachers have kind of come to rely on the devices too much. Um, you know, a lot of the, now it's like, you know, we send out a remind at night, Hey, here's your right. assignment. Here's the link. Um, but, but I, but I would also say that, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, it's one of the things that we don't talk a lot about in the phones. And I think that if you're not in the classroom, you probably don't see this is just how pacifying they are when it comes to emotion. You know, I mean, it, you know, it used to be if you're like a cranker or a curmudgeon teacher and the kids are loud and they're talking, you tell, pipe down, stop yelling, da da da. And now I will tell you, I miss that um, because what happens is when you have these devices, and let's say you have two or three minutes at the end of class every day, it used to be you say, okay, guys, we're done. I don't wanna go to the next thing, you know, keep it down. I'll see you tomorrow. And they would kind of walk around and they would flirt and they would talk and they would just, you know, this, this kind of just orchestra of, uh, of talking and, and whatever. Nowadays, radio silence. It's now just, in their yeah, faces they, they, and their phone. They, they yeah. Immediately like this. And they are absolutely silent. I've gone to birthday parties, guys. I've gone to birthday parties where you walk in and it's seven or eight girls sitting yeah. there on the, not that the guys don't do it, but I've seen it with the girls where they're, they're sitting there, all of them on their phones. Like no talking, no swimming, no yelling around, none of it. And it's just, I mean, what is the part of life where you're supposed to be kind of loud and vivacious and kind of excessive? It's being young. Right. Having a party, maybe. Um, Yeah. I know. Well, you see it at restaurants too. You see entire families sitting all, all of there with little kids, with devices, and it's replaced communicating with one another. And so, no, I don't, um, I, I can imagine in the classroom that that the devices, not to mention the distraction that they are, and then and then factor in the iPads, which kids very quickly figure out how you can watch Netflix on the iPads during whatever lecture. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that that's been a very difficult uh, phenomenon to incorporate. And there are pluses to it. It's not like it's a hunt like everything. It's not a hundred percent bad. It's just hundred percent bad. Op- it's 100% bad. <laughs> well. You know, I, I for eighth I'm grade, say I sent my son bad. to a school that had no iPads, nothing, and I and I loved it. All pencil and paper, and and it the was, internet it, is the worst thing to ever happen to human beings. So, <laughs> I've said that. Well, for well we years. wouldn't be doing this interview without. <laughs> That's it. true. We put tablets a little in a bar, having a drink. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I will say though, like I think to, to Andrew's point a little bit, um, and maybe this is just kind of the Gen X dad in me. I do think that it's profoundly hard to be a, a parent and navigate all this. Um, I can't imagine my dad as a teacher navigating it as in his classroom. I can't imagine my father navigating this as a, uh, as a dad. Um, and, and, and there's so much, there's so much that's coming at our children. And I think what really 
frustrates people. And what, what so much of the response I get from from the book and from you know conferences and stuff is essentially that you know parents are just absolutely sick and tired of having to fight so dang hard just to raise normal people with right. normal values that have normal aspirations. And, and mm-hmm. you know, Andrew's point about it's all bad, I'm, I'm kind of close to that. I mean, I, I think that it's interesting that, you know, all the men in the Silicon Valley who invented these things don't let their children do it, right? They, they, you right. know, Bill Gates- They have these Waldorf like, schools where they have zero technology did, like that. Did you see this right. morning, there was something in the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal that talked about a school, uh, a small school that they got rid of all the cell phones for yeah. both students and yeah. teachers and gave them these very simple, phones so that they could do simple texts and, and talk, but it got rid of all of the apps. It got rid of all of the, you oh. know, access to, to data and streaming. And that was a boarding school actually, but, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, but it's, in, it's, it's really interesting to see. I think the kids, it was a hard adjustment, but then the kids, it sounded like they, they liked it and you know, having, you know, and it's becoming, I think also a thing where people are taking holidays, social media holidays. And I would love to see more of that. I just think these kids are exhausted by it and they don't even know differently because they've been they've grown up on it. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a brilliant point. And what I would say about the school thing is, I mean, I remember going to school and it's hard. I mean, even if you have two great parents and all the opportunities in the world, going to school is kind of like going into a boxing ring, right? You have a round, you go in there and you, you, you know, you fight for your grade and you fight for your, you know, for your friends and you, and you try and fit in and you have like, like you're just besieged with things when you're seven or eight or 15 years old, but it used to be that, okay, I had a hard day. I didn't do great on that test. I got into a little fight with my friend. You know, I, I lost this or whatever. But you go home and you have a mom or a dad or both. You have a saxophone lesson. You watch the Wonder Years on ABC with everybody else at the same time, right? And you you have a respite from it. You get like a little bit of a reprieve before you go back into the ring. And what I try and get people to understand is imagine growing up where you don't have, your parents are working, you have one parent. Uh, they're working two or three jobs. They're not providing for you particularly well. They don't talk to you very much. The only thing you have is your phone, and which, by the way, all of your problems at school are now brought home with you, right? That fight is continuing on now. Your teachers are sending you assignments at night. And so there's no, if you go back to the corner after the, the round, there's nobody there to support you. You don't feel good. And then you have to go right back into it the next day. No wonder they're anxious as hell. No wonder they're unhappy. No wonder they feel like they're under siege all the time because the things that give us distance and comfort are just simply not there for this generation. So you're saying, though, I mean, you're articulating two problems here, which, which is, you know, there are societal issues, family structure, the parents don't have, maybe they don't have two parents, maybe they're just not eating dinner with their families, mm-hmm. what have you. And then the phones have made those issues much, much worse. Is that mm-hmm. is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. As, as I would say, as I said you know, a few minutes ago, kind of, you have this kind of culture of hyper-individualism, but I also think kind of right along with that is kind of the absence of, of, of familial but structure, right? Is, and, it, is that one because of the other, in your opinion? Is the culture of individualism because they don't have well, that family I, structure or community structure? Or do you think they're really, there's well, something I mean, that these kids are getting in terms of, of an you know, ideolo- individualistic ideology that is separate from the family yeah, I, or community? I, 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 I think what's, you know, what, what really has kind of, I don't want to say has destroyed the, you know, the two-parent family in America, but I, I do think what, what, what's preventing it from being repaired is this kind of sense that, uh, you know, life is, is this kind of hyper-individualism of, I'm going to have a tryout marriage or, uh, or you know, that cohabitating is, is just as good. Or now you have this new thing where we're talking about polyamory and how that's just as good. Um, and, and I do think that that's right. definitely there. That doesn't allow us to repair what's happening. But I think that the, the 
absence of adults in the lives of children, coupled with hyper-individualism, and then to try and take the place of both of those things, we've just given them these parasitic devices. I think that picture is really what's poisoned the, the, the lives and the souls and the aspirations of our children. I mean, like kind of the big idea I would say to you is that to kind of combine culture and family, all of it, is that you just, we, we simply have forgotten. And I, I can't believe I have to say this, but it's so true and so forgotten. And that is that young people need to be raised, right? Like you need adults yeah. in your life. We, we don't come, we don't come with these instincts of how to grow up. Um, I mean, this, and this is, this is, I mean, if we want to get a little more complicated, this is the kind of complicated thing about liberal democracy is that we in America have a commitment to a belief that we are mm -hmm. all born free, right? And we are all born free. That's true. But we're not born with the knowledge and the values and the, and the wisdom to how to use that freedom. That requires family and friends and schools and churches. And, and so we've given freedom without wisdom. We've given car keys without a license. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why I think so many of them are so unhappy in their 20s and their 30s. I mean, this is this is really, Andrew. I, I mean, there's no anchor. I mean, it's been all yeah. about freedom, 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 self, 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 make me happy, happy. And then it's we used to have these shared values where at least we thought that the country was generally good, that it was great to be here, but that's all come under attack as well. And you, I'm sure, in, in, as a history teacher, has have seen this front and mm -hmm. center. And so you, you have all of these, all of these kind of the um, decay of these structures. In, and, and then in addition to that, like the other whole idea that it's actually we're lucky to live here, that this that this can be a place of opportunity and achievement. So, you know, no wonder the kids are wandering and no wonder that that they are, as you say, hollowed out. Um, what have you seen in the classroom in terms of kind of the erosion of or really kind of the, the assault against things that I think we used to take for granted in terms of, of uh, you know, the founding ideas of the country? Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people think that, you know, that that May and June of 2020 were like year one of kind of anti-racist. Absolutely anti not. It, it's really not. No, I mean, like it, it kind of 1980. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it goes way back. But I'll tell you, though, that the, the problem, um, as I see it, is that, you know, I, I think we have this really silly debate about, uh, you know, the 1619 Project and critical race theory. Um, I think, you know, it's what I call the 90% solution. The 90% solution is you teach, you, you, you teach everything, right? I mean, it's like this idea that we're just going to teach the good and that it can be explained away. No, I don't think that's right. And I think you're just focusing on the idea that America is a fraud. It was founded on pernicious evil ideas. Racism is in our DNA. And we've, you know, we, we've never gotten any better. We've just camouflaged all of the oppression and the negative things. But I think obviously that's wrong too. But, but what bothers me is that young people, you know, they, they have a view of the country where they think that the real country is kind of this hidden, camouflaged, stealth, clandestine uh, persona kind of hiding in the shadows. And that we gloss it over with these nice stories about founding fathers and Abraham Lincoln and I have a dream speeches, but really that's not the real America. And that kind of, you know, that kind of paranoia, that kind of cynicism, that kind of uh, sinister dyspeptic worldview is really easily perpetuated on social media, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and the problem is it is that social media is not a place that really is good at glamorizing being grateful, gratitude, patriotism, kindness. It's really snarky, negative, cynical. That's what does well, the kind of the punch, the, the sarcasm, the irony. Um, and so, you know, when, when I, when you see students and they don't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, which is fine, 
I, that, I mean, again, 1947 Supreme Court decision is very clear. I don't think you should have to if you don't want to. But, you know, I, sometimes as the years will go on and I'll get to know a kid, I'll kind of just say, you know, I noticed you never say the pledge, whatever, it's fine. But like, like why? Like, what, what's your thing? And they they typically have like no answer. Like, they're just like, I just don't. Or they'll say some broad thing like, well, oppression. I mean, they, they won't really talk about it in detail. And so here's really what it boils down to. Um, is I think most of us, and I'm pretty sure that the two of you would probably agree, is when you when you want to figure out what is the real America, you know, it's not where we started, it's what we did, right? So yes, we had slavery, and yes, it was evil, and yes, it was a contradiction with classical liberal ideals of the Declaration, but we had a civil war, and we had a 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, and we had the Emancipation Proclamation, and you had a civil rights process, and you had a Voting Rights Act, and you had the 24th Amendment, and that, that arc is the real America. Um, it's kind of like after, you know, the, the George Floyd uh, uh, incident, you know, is the real America the the, 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 the the cop who murdered him? Or was it the 99.999% of us who were offended by that and said, that's not who we are? And yet, I think sometimes students will look at the extreme and say, well, that's that's the real us. Does that make any sense? It does. So I have a question. So as a teacher of, of history and government, are you able to counter what these kids are getting on social media? Can you educate them? I mean, um, can you change you know, their mind? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But they're very like, see, I, on one hand, like I'm pretty, I mean, I'm pretty careful. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to hit hard. I'm not going to like, so what do you guys think about transgenderism today? Like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, we're not going to sit there and, and have a, a long debate about critical race theory. Um, not going to do it. Uh, they, they and, and furthermore, they really don't, they don't say that much. I mean, I think sometimes the public thinks that, you know, we get to these, we have this vision of, uh, you know, an activist teacher up there trying to, to, you know, kind of make sure that, you know, uh, that, 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 that kindy is being taught in all the schools. That's really not what's happening. I mean, if my students don't even know who our senators are, I mean, the, the, the real problem is not kind of this ultra woke left wing view of America. It's the fact my students don't, they don't know ignorant. anything. They're yeah. ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> do I mean, they, and, and don't care? I mean, I get the sense. It's more that, I mean, do they care to it's, know? It's are just, they embarrassed that they don't know who the vice president is? Not, or they don't, eh. not, not particularly. I mean, it's just, it's just not relevant to their lives at all. I mean, like, why do they yeah. need to know that you have to be 35 to run for president? So, I mean, like, I, I think that, like, in the news, especially in the right wing, you know, everybody's just all about, you know, we're being indoctrinated, indoctrinated. And, and there are libs of TikTok and kind of some cray cray going on. But the 99% problem is ignorance. Beth yeah. is right. It's, they don't know anything. So it's hard to scaffold. It's hard, hard to build anything on that. But to, I guess, Andrew's question, are they interested in knowing things or is it that they actually aren't interested in some of these, the, the history and the context of how, what happened and when, or you, you made this point in the book, like, actually, they want to be influencers without yeah. really having accomplished anything. Like, that's one of the right. goals. And so, yeah. you know, that kind of strikes me as something where there's just maybe they lack a love of learning more than anything Uh so well, I, I guess what what is it like there in the well, classroom with oh, them? Well, I'd say a few things. One, I mean, I, I think I hope that I razzle and dazzle enough that they want to. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'd like to know that. I'd like to think that I I'm would making think so. it interesting. <laughs> I hope so. But I mean, but then again, you know, they might. They, you know, then again, you know, I can just bear my soul teaching them about something, uh, and then two, you know about the impeachment process, and then two days later I'll ask a question about it, and they're like, I don't know. I'm like, I just taught it to you, you know. So so part of me thinks they they, they just kind of shine me on a little bit. Um, but, but the other part of me thinks that like, you know, I think part of it is that they, um, that, that just politics is not particularly relevant to their lives yet. 
Um, and, and I do like, you know, of course I keep track of a lot of my former students, you know, I'm, I'm close to many of them. And, and I think it just takes, some of them, it just takes a while. And so I guess I'm just trying to give them some knowledge um, of the institutions of American government, American values, so that when they do go out, they have a context within which to learn it other than some kind of kind of odd lens of postmodern critical race theory uh, that you're going to get on there, which again, I think it's fine to talk about those things if you want to. I mean, I'm a very, I'm very liberal when it comes to free speech. I'm, I'm pretty much in any, you know, you're free to articulate whatever viewpoint you have, but if you get to say it, then somebody else gets to disagree with you. Um, and, and you should, by the way, be able to have your mind changed too. I mean, I used to think, I don't know about you guys, when I was younger, I used to think that as I got older, I would be more certain in my knowledge and I would have this kind of urbane sophistication and I would understand the world. I got to tell you, the older I get, the more ignorant I feel, the less sure I am of things. Uh, I feel more Socratic in kind of the sense that, you know, the, the wonders of the universe are, are so big and so large and I'm so small um, that really assuming a posture of humility to me at this point seems more the logical way to live than kind of dogmatic certainty all the time. So that's kind of how I approach the classroom a bit. A lot Do of the questions... Yeah. Do the kids appreciate that there is open debate in your class, that there can be, that there is free speech? Do they even understand that that is an issue, you know, nationally, that we're debating these kind of things? Or, or do you get kids that are, you know, offended and want to be kept safe? No, you know, I I think I'm kind of spoiled. I mean, I, I really don't. I mean, and I will say sometimes, I will say, guys, I'm going to give you an opinion right now. Like, this is my opinion. But I'm very clear to say, you do not have to agree with me. Feel free to disagree. Um, it's interesting because 10 or 15 years ago, I would say that. And they would. They'd say, I disagree. Here's why. Da, da, da. And we'd have this you know, kind of long conversation. I remember having a kind of a very spirited debate about how um, in the 1965 Civil, uh, Voting Rights Act, you know, the federal government went down to the South and actively got African-Americans signed up to vote. And I remember uh, a student saying, well, why would we do that? Why would we favor one you know, racial group in one region, that makes no sense. And I'd say, well, look at what they've gone through for 50 years, you know, to do the opposite, it makes sense. And so I remember getting this really spirited debate. I don't have those debates anymore. Like they just, like, like, like they just, it just doesn't happen. Um, and it's, it's, and again, though, I'd like to kind of point out to everybody listening to the podcast, I don't take it personally because they're not talking to their parents either. I mean, this is a big, big, we talk about, you know, in the last 10 years, when I first started teaching political science, kids always would say, hey, my dad says this about Social Security or my mom says this about, about affirmative action or, or my dad loves George W. Bush or my dad hates George W. Bush. They would talk about their siblings, their, you know, their, 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 their pastors, their cousins. Nobody talks about their family ever. Like nobody ever mentions mom, dad, cousins, brothers. And I finally said this year, I said, so like, why don't you guys ever talk about what's going on in your family? And they say, we just we still never talk about that kind of stuff. We, you know, and then and then you start to dig deeper, and it's because they're not really eating with their families. They don't go to church with their families. Um, everybody's on their phones all the time. Just the amount of of conversation that families have with each other is drastically less than it was even in my childhood. I mean, think about it. A hundred years ago, if you were a young person, you might have had you know four adults you were living with, maybe five or six. You have grandparents there. You had your parents there. And you were, you know, had all these adults kind of modeling adult behavior, adult talking, adult actions, adult values. Well, imagine that that's gone now. There's no adults around. Like I'm by myself. I'm, I'm, I'm at home. I'm on my phone. And, you know, this is why one of the things I hate that we do nowadays is we expect teachers to do it all. I mean, the last 20 years, that's really been our reform movement. We've had a very simple postulate, which is 
better teachers, better education, without realizing that teachers are a really small part of it, actually. I mean, if you really want to do the research, teachers maybe make about 10% of difference in the outcome of a child's education. It's really all the stuff that happens before they get there. That's why I always say, if I have students who walk in and they're curious and they want to get an A at the first day, that's 90% of my job that I had nothing to do with. We'll be back right after this. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, do you talk about this with parents at parent-teacher conferences? I mean, do you have you kind of probed to find out why some of these interactions are lessening over time? Um, I mean, this is this is one of the points I'm trying to make at the conference is that my parent problem is is a lack of conversations. I just don't really hear from them wow. all that much. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things that I do is on parent night, I challenge all of my parents to come into the classroom one day. Um, I say, you know, like I can sit up here and tell you what we do in class. And you're, you could ask your kid, you know, what do we do every day? And they might, might or might not tell you, but, you know, come on in, like come in one day. It's the best when they don't tell their kid. I love that. When they just walk in, especially when they walk in with donuts, they walk in and they, you know, they put down the donuts and they sit down in the chair next to where their kid's going to show up. And then the student arrives and there's, there's mom or dad, you know, and I love those days. Like that's, that's fun. Um, but it's interesting because when I first started that, you know, a long time ago, I'd get maybe 15, 20 parents a year who would do it. They'd take me up on it. They're like, oh, cool. I get to come sit through class and whatever. Nowadays, three or four, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like it's just, I'm telling you, parents are just not present in the way that they were. And you can see it in the behavior of the kids. Well, hopefully COVID has um, awakened many parents to issues, not necessarily in your classroom, but writ large, you know, across classrooms. So um, ideally that will, that dynamic will change, but you never know. Um, Have you ever, have you ever been tempted to leave teaching? Like, have you ever gotten frustrated thinking that, you know, maybe I should throw in the towel because, because of the direction this is going in? Um, Well, I mean, not particularly. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about 12 or 13 years ago, California was going through all these budget cuts and my wife, we were sitting there brushing our teeth one morning. My wife turns to me and she says, Jeremy, it's really good that you have tenure. And, I, and I'm sitting there brushing my teeth. I'm like, yeah, you're right, sweetie, it is. And then I pause and I'm like, well, why do you think it's so great? And she's like, well, if you think about it, you don't have any other skills. There's nothing else you could ever really do besides teaching. <laughs> Thanks, honey. So, so yeah, so, you know, I guess to a certain degree, uh, it's kind of like, well, what else am I going to do? Um, I, I do feel like uh, I, I do have an absolute, I mean, I love the classroom whenever Whenever I have any other issues in my life, when I go into the classroom, it kind of gets quiet. Um, I, but I'm very lucky. I mean, I, I do get to teach kind of the upper level classes. I like my students. Um, they baffle me <laughs> and they shock me and they frustrate me. But this is what bothers me. There's nothing inherently wrong with this generation of young people. I mean, in some ways, I mean, what, what's so frustrating about kind of their lack of love of the country is that they are so thoroughly American. Like they don't even understand 
that the mm-hmm. things that offend them is when we don't live up to our unique ideals. And it's like, guys, like you have this completely Western liberal view of the world and you're offended when, 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 when other countries live up to it and yet you don't check the men and the women and the institutions that sacrifice to give us these principles and this standard. And so, I mean, it's like this weird duality in their minds where to some degree, they're the most American kids ever who are the least patriotic. I mean, it's yeah. really this weird duality uh, that you have that you have going on there. You know, you've mentioned the uh, term adulting. Uh, that yeah. that's part of the solution. I think is if we had more adults that were adulting. What what do you mean by that? Like, what specifically could adults be doing differently um, to help kids? Because well, you know, kind of in fairness, like they're they're kids. Like this is the world that they were born into. So some of it some yeah. of it falls on their shoulders. But quite frankly, it's the adults in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say it's 90. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I, I make clear, very clear in the in the book early on is that it is not the fault of our kids. It, the kids are completely innocent in this. I mean, we all accept the world that we're born into. And we have to navigate it as best we can. I think Andrew made that great point, which is, you know, if you don't have a phone today, you can't be social. Uh, you can't go to school the way that you're supposed to. So it's not their fault. But what I would say about the adulting is let me start in the classroom. We, we have got to stop trying to be our students' best friends. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I, I was thinking about writing, uh, an op-ed mm-hmm. about, you know, about maybe it's time to go back to the 1970s, you know, paper, pencil, memorize things. Oh my God forbid. You actually have to memorize things. Do a you know, times memor- table. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, mem- and memorize the emancipation proclamation or not the, I'm sorry, the, the Gettysburg address, uh, no devices. Um, but most of all, ask teachers to be teachers. And I think the problem is, is that we keep thinking, well, you know, the school is this kind of institutional backdrop for all of society's failures, right? If they're not eating at home, we're going to feed them. If they're not getting counseling at home, we'll give them counseling here. And I think one of the problems, you know, and if they have, if they come from a violent background or a, a background where there's drugs or whatever, it used to be, we'd say, okay, that that's maybe at home, but at school, there's a standard and you're going to learn what that standard is here. Now we say that it's somehow empathetic and kind and humane to forgive bad behavior at school, because after all, you can't really expect them not to bring to school the bad behavior from where they're growing up. And I, and I think the problem is, is that we're asking teachers to be counselors and doctors and providers and friends and and acting in local parentis and all of these things. And at the end of the day, you know, asking our, 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 you know, our teachers to be things that they're not trained for, like who, who, who is asking though? Your dis- the districts are asking this. This is okay. all the reform. So it's coming down from yeah. administrations. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And so, like, and so like, like, I think what we do is we take like a decent idea, like take like social emotional learning, for instance. Mm-hmm. There is nothing wrong with saying that a kid's going to do better if they feel like a teacher is being kind to them and, 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 and the teacher cares about them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I agree with that. There's that's not a that's not some that's not a conspiracy theory to kind of destroy education as, as SEL. What gets weird is when you begin to say, "Well, here's the thing: if you decide to be disruptive and you decide to throw an f bomb at me, or you decide to really destroy the class, I'm going to stop class. We're going to get in a circle. We're going to have this restorative practice, uh, and we're going to talk about your feelings and why you feel that way, and, and we're going to talk it out. Um, I think that's when you're asking teachers to do things that they're not made to do. Um, I mean, the number one complaint I hear from teachers about when it comes to discipline is a student will be highly disrespectful. They'll do something that's destroying the learning environment for everybody else, by the way. I send them out. 
and they are right back in the next day because we think that if we don't suspend students, they're behaving better which of course is so silly and so folly. It's like my friends here in California who think that if you don't enforce the law, that all of a sudden there's not gonna be lawlessness. Or all of a sudden, if you don't have any kind of testing standards and you just give everybody a diploma that everybody's gonna be educated now. It's, Was that it's, a post 2020 switch? No, that no, you can't no. suspend kids, or does that go back further than that? No, that goes back a little bit further, but it was it was like put on steroids though. Well, right? it was I mean, Obama, wasn't it? The, I mean, Obama, the dear colleague, letter that was issued in the mid 2010s that basically said we want to see a reduction in suspensions among certain groups because any disparity is going to indicate that your school's racist and it's being done for racist policies yeah, well, and i think that's what that's when i from my reading where when that really started taking on um an added dimension and and just you know the floodgates yeah, well, opened yeah and, and you, you know you had you know book, books like you know the school to prison pipeline Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I will say, I mean, I do think that there, I do think that there was room for reform. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that there can be better ideas. Like I think that, you know, kids screws up once and, uh, you know, they're suspended. I mean, for five days, I think, you know, I think that that, sure. we could abs- you know, kind of the zero tolerance thing. I think that was too far. I, I understand people with good hearts saying, Hey, you know what? Zero tolerance, taking kids who come from a rough background and then making them miss more school is not a good idea. I get that. I, and, mm-hmm. and I, under, I understand it to a certain degree. What, where I where I disagree though is where you, you see districts that went from you know seventeen hundred suspensions in a year to five, mm-hmm. you know, and you see these drastic swings. And the thing that really kills me, and this is where I don't want to get emotional here on your podcast, but you know, it's really hard for me not to be an unapologetic believer in the American dream when I teach a lot of kids who don't have, have great backgrounds, but by God, when they come to school, they try hard, they do the work. They make the most out of their opportunities. They go to college, right? Because they understand that there's one certain door to the American dream in this country, and it's a high quality education. And, you know, the difference between kids who have a lot of resources and those that don't, kids who don't have a lot of resources, they get one shot sometimes, right? There's not a huge infrastructure backing them up saying, oh, you got kicked out of school for this, but we'll now we'll send you to this nice private school, or we'll get you therapy, or we'll make sure you have an SAT coach. No, there's none of that for a lot of these kids. They get one chance. And a lot of these kids get one chance and to have a system where it's going to be oriented around the one kid who doesn't care, who is Mm -hmm. disrupting their chance. I find that to be profoundly offensive. And you're really hurting all these other kids who come from difficult backgrounds. They're just trying to make the most out of their one chance. And you're orienting the whole experience around the emotional outbursts of one disruptive student. I think that that's morally wrong. And I think you're hurting the very populations that you say you care about. 100% right. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, what, why is it so hard to, to, ch- I guess, get the pendulum to swing back in the middle? Um, or, or is it like, are you seeing any changes where people are realizing that perhaps we have become, you know, o- overly um, helpful and restorative and that maybe we need to, to, you know, take into consideration that this is bearing terrible consequences um, for other children? Yeah, no, I know. I think there absolutely is. And I see it in two places. Okay. One, one is and not to kind of bounce away from this, but I do definitely see this. I was going to say this earlier with the cell phones. There's absolutely a movement. I, there's absolutely like when I came back to school this year, I could, I could see it uh, in, in, in kind of the, the in the conversations and hearing the conversations of my colleagues, like we're done with the phones, like they're gone. They're gone. Um, I mean, that's essentially my view, which is when you're in class away, I don't want to mm-hmm. see them. I don't want to hear them. If you have to do it, go outside and do it. I don't want them on your desk anymore. So I, I do think that there's a reaction against that. Um, you know, one of the columns I wrote for the Daily Wire over the summer was about, you know, it's time to abolish them 
in the classroom. Like it's time to get rid of them. Um, but, but the second thing is I do think that there is absolutely this kind of pendulum going back about some of these restorative practices. And again, I just want to be very clear. I'm not, I'm not one of these people who thinks that SEL is a, is a plot. I don't think that restorative justice is all bad. I, I do think there's a place for some of those ideas. I really do. Um, but 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 I, I you hear in, in teachers who are saying, this is ridiculous for kids to kind of be sent out and they're back the next day. Um, we're losing control of the classroom. We're losing control of the kids. Um, and it's kind of the, the worst elements uh, of behavior that are dictating what everybody else has to follow that's got to end. So I, I, do, I do see, I haven't seen it a lot in policy yet, but you hear it amongst the core of teachers. That's that's good to hear. And, and with the phones, I mean, are you is the administration on board with that? I mean, is there is there a chance that they'll say just no phones in, in the class or, or you got to put them out in a, you know, in a locker yeah. or something and just pick? No. Yeah, I know. I think this is I think this is uh, <laughs> to be my government teacher. This is all federalism. This is all decentralized. I mean, I think there is no one size fits all policy. Like in my school, it is literally so decentralized. It's up to each teacher. Now, okay. I, I, I would be down now. And I've not had I've not had a single parent complaint about it. I've not had one administrator complain about it. Uh, I mean, I, I as a, as a parent, I mean, my daughter is in my class, uh, which is kind of weird sometimes. Um, but you know, I, I can I, imagine. Yeah, it, you know, but but <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I have not really had any blowback because I think this is the kind of thing where I think everybody deep down knows kids included. Right kids included. Like, kids included. Do they? Do they? I mean, I mean, they you, know. you I sense they that they know break. that they're addicted to these things that they yeah. want. An excuse they not to have them, right? Yes, they know. A quick, quick story. On the last day of school, what I always do is I always tell the seniors, you know, tell me if you could go back to your first day of high school, because today's the last day of high school. If you could go back to the first day and you could give yourself some advice, what would you tell your freshman self? And I remember the valedictorian about five years ago raised his phone and said, very simple, I would tell my freshman self to take this phone, go up to the bluffs and throw them out uh, and never look at it again. And you know what the kids did? They all nodded. They know it, you know, and this is kind of the fight I have with my 12 year old is I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get him, you know, I don't care if you have your phone, but, but you, you, if you walk around staring at it, if you can't do homework without it, then it's becoming a problem. And, and I think that, you know, kind of that, that, that mitigation is where adults are needed and they're just not, they're just not there for a lot of people. But you see hope. I, oh, no, I, I, I mean, I mean, you see, you see the sense that, okay, on the phone issue, on the restorative justice yeah, issue, yeah. that pendulum has swung back that we might be able to save these kids? No, no, I do. And I think this is kind of, in my speech, this is kind of the thing that I, I thought was interesting is, you know, it, it, I think if you're a famous person, you're kind of used to blowback. And I mean, there are some people who are at that conference who kind of, I know they enjoy throwing bombs and getting in the middle of Twitter wars. And, you know, that is not me. I'm a sensitive soul. Um, so when, when, when you write a book that does really unexpectedly well, and you get contacted and people doing or saying nasty things, it kind of kind of hurts me a little bit. Um, and so it was kind of a nice form of redemption for what I've seen in the last six months, which is, you know, Harvard, Harvard talking about how young people are like in all seven areas of well-being, the younger you are, the more miserable you are. The New York Times, the LA Times, the Guardian in, in London, they are all starting to feature stories talking about how we're losing these kids to the culture, to the phones, uh, to the, to, you know, how unhappy they are. Um, you look at suicide, you look at self-harm, you look at anxiety, you look at eating disorders and loneliness. It's finally starting to become a bipartisan issue. And I guess that's kind of, that's really what I wish I, 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 I could have gotten across better is 
This is not a political issue. This is not mm -hmm. a liberal or conservative issue. This is an American issue. And maybe even if you want to kind of have a sense of grand eloquence, a Western liberal issue, because you're seeing these trends in England, as we heard from some of our friends, you're seeing these issues uh, in, in even in Japan. Um, and, and so you're seeing it all over the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, I'm starting to see that it's, it. I guess that's what I'm saying is, it, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, this is kind of more of a conservative view. Now I think it's it's becoming more of a mainstream. Yes, we have a problem with this generation. They're mm -hmm. being hollowed out. So, you know, I'm not saying my book, book had anything to do with it, but. but well, I you're prescient like in a way, like you had this obviously in process and then it actually happened to come out in the middle of COVID, but you didn't write it for COVID. However, you, you identified a lot of trends that I think, you know, that a lot of parents finally understood because of how things were being taught in their living rooms on the internet. And um, no, so I think your I think your timing was good. And I would agree. And I think also because I think that there is a recognition that a lot that happened during COVID was not healthy for kids yeah. and that so many things that were already becoming bad yeah. just accelerated. And so um, yeah, I would, I think I would absolutely agree. I think your, your book has a very calm tenor. I mean, it's tough, it's tough material, but it's, but I think you present it in a really balanced way and you're not there to inflame or incite. You're there to inform um, so that parents can wake up and and people can wake up to, to what's going on amidst our kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I'd like to think it's not inflammatory at all. <laughs> I, I, I try and make a very thoughtful and, and I hope somewhat eloquent at places a case uh, because at the end of the day, and until you identify the problem, you're never going to be able to come up with solutions. And, and I would say that, you know, that this is kind of really the one big benefit to being a public school teacher is, you know, we're not going to be rich. We're not going to be famous. I'm never going to have a blue check mark on Twitter. Well, you can but, buy one, eight bucks. Maybe. But, yeah. I can buy one. Yeah, bucks I, a month. Bucks. Right. Yeah, maybe I can buy one. <laughs> exactly. But, but I will tell you, like, there is a benefit that I think when you're in the classroom, you do see things a bit earlier. I mean, and that's why, you know, that's why sometimes it's frustrating for my colleagues and me, we'll, we'll see you know, the New Yorker or the Atlantic or Washington or the Wall Street Journal will have this long expose. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. We've known this for years if you're in the trenches of the American classroom. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that's, you know, I'm not, I don't have any insight. Uh, I was just there and I, and I saw it. Um, and, I, and I think that I, you know, I think that I have the kinds of students and hopefully the kind of educational background where I could really kind of draw attention to it. Um, and 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 really try and get people to understand that this is a solvable problem. But what I, I don't want to do is I don't want anybody out there who buys the book or is thinking about buying the book. It, it, there's no easy answers here. Like like it like it took decades getting us into this. It's profoundly complicated. It's dealing with issues of culture and politics and identity and and parents and economics and education. I mean, all the big things out there in society. Um, but but I, I will tell you that uh, at the end of the day, uh, identifying the problems has got to be to be the first one, the first thing we have to do. So, well, you do a fantastic job of identifying those problems. The book is hollowed out. And I read it. I think, Beth, you've read it. I think it's mm -hmm. terrific. I hope every parent would read it. And we thank you very much for coming on Take Back Our Schools. Absolutely honored. Thank you so much, friends. Thank you. Well, we should explain. I, we, uh, Jeremy referenced a conference. So I think we should explain to our listeners sure. what that was. Mm -hmm. So there was a conference, it was about two weeks ago now, in Boston with an organization called Parents Unite. And Beth and I were both on the planning committee for that conference. Jeremy was actually the first speaker and he spoke about his book, Hollowed Out. Uh, and then some of the other speakers 
no, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, James had, Lindsay, mm-hmm. Ian Rowe, Colin Wright, Colin Wright, Leo Sapir. We had a really good panel Bob on Itell. Mm-hmm. gender issues. Mm-hmm. Bob Itell, right, talking about Title IX. Uh, James Lindsay gave a great overview of kind of the big picture of what mm-hmm. all these acronyms mean. The gender panel was terrific. Yeah, some British friends there that gave kind of that perspective yeah. from, um, you know, what's going on across the ponds. So, but Jeremy, Jeremy's um, opening speech just really set the set stage. The tone. Yeah, it, it was, it was fantastic. And so we'll be sure to let people know when that's available as well. And uh, I just, I thought the book was, I actually had not read it before the conference. I just had not gotten to it, but I did read it this past week, like before he came on just as, now. As did I. Uh, and I really wish that I had, I had read it just because I would have talked to him about it endlessly. It's, it's very good. He's a very good writer, um, invokes yeah. a lot of, of historical figures and um, experts and people that I thought also just really added weight to the observations that he has had um, in the classroom. And so it's, um, so it's very insightful and it's not, you know, it, it does, it touches on a lot of difficult subjects. I mean, it's not fun to talk about the fact that really our kids have really lost meaning in their lives. I mean, I think that's essentially yeah. what, what he means by hollowed out. And um, that's, you know, that's not a good place to be when you are developing and kind of figuring out the world and, and, you know, how you're going to navigate it to essentially feel rather hopeless. And so, um, yep. So I think I, I recommend it to people and I hope that we can, you know, I, I hope that we see some progress. Like I think the more, well, that I'm happy that he was optimistic that yeah, he's seen so. some pushback recognition on the phone issue on the restorative justice issue that we've gone too far. I'm not saying we solve all these societal issues and get parents eating with their kids, family dinners, you know, five, six, seven nights a week. Right. Um, but hopefully we make some progress. So I'm happy that that he was somewhat optimistic on that. Yeah, there are many dimensions that he talks about families, um, kids' relationships with one another, clearly the influence of social media. So it is going to take a while to, I think, address all of those dimensions. But um, yes, good that he's positive. Well, and, you know, and it's, you know, it, well, I if think, we solved all these problems, then we'd have no one to talk to on these take back our school. Episodes. I, well, so, you know, we've got it, you know, like, <laughs> that's the one way of looking at it. I right? that would we that, need content. <laughs> I, I, well, we, we do. Um, I'm sure we could find something else to to talk about. Um, I'd, I'd be happy if we do eventually get to that place. Um, but his book is a great step. So Uh, On behalf of Beth Feely, I'm Andrew Gutman. We thank you for listening. If you like us, please share us and review us. And we will talk to you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.